Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back with our coverage of 1983's James Bond film, Never Say Never. Again, and we're here with another Spy Master interview. Cam, who are we talking to? Yes, we are talking to Barbara Carrera, who appeared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who appeared in Never Say Never Again as Fatima Blush, probably the most memorable character in the movie, I would have to say. Yeah, I mean, there's we spoke about it in our review this week, to be fair, but, you know, just in terms of the podcast, I you know, looking at it, I think there's going to be a, a few watershed moments in our time. And for me, this is one of them. I just, ever since seeing Condor Man, I've wanted to speak to Barbara about that film. And then obviously, we finally got to Never Say Never Again. And I we managed to make it happen. And we're talking to Barbara Carrera, guys. It's, it's crazy. This was a real treat. And I think people are really going to enjoy the interview. Absolutely. So I guess without further ado... Prepare yourself for the greatest rapture of your life. Cam, roll the interview. And we are joined on the show today by the one and only Barbara Carrera. How are you doing today, Barbara? Great, great. Thank you. What about you? Uh, Wonderful. I hear you're having great weather in LA. I can't say the same for Vancouver and London, unfortunately. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, yes, we're having beautiful weather here, but that's very normal for Southern California. You're making me jealous by the second. So, um, I mean, we've been speaking about you on the show for quite a while now. We, this week, we've spoken about Never Say Ever Again, but we've previously spoken about Condor Man on the show, and we're both big fans of both films. So thank you for joining us today, firstly. Condor Man, that is a surprise. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Condor Man. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my very first films and uh for Disney. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you liked it. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, it's it it was one of the early ones we we spoke about on the show and uh it's it's an absolute riot. Plus Michael Crawford being a Brit, I I really enjoyed it. But I think um before we sort of get into the films, I'm really curious just to know how you got into the film business. What made you want to star in films? Strange enough, Scott, you know, I, my mother told me that I, uh, when I was five years old, I told her that I was going to be a famous movie star, and when I was 18, and I would have red hair. So I suppose I knew about it ever since I was a child. But um, uh, the way it happened was, um, I, I didn't know how it would happen, really. And the way it happened was, uh, I was uh, in... I was a model in the 70s, and um, I was in Cannes on on an assignment for a German magazine called Burda. And um, we had just arrived there in Cannes, and um, that that same day I I got a call from my agent, a Wilhelmina agent in New York, saying, that there was this this uh, um, producer director that was casting for this film and that they wanted to give me a screen test. They saw a picture of me someplace in the magazine and wanted me for a screen test. So of course I had to ask the the crew that I was working with, the Buddha, the photographer, and the editor. So they at lunch I mentioned this to them and they all rather laughed because. You know, they thought this was just a, a hoax, but it wasn't really. But they wouldn't let me go. So 
so um, I had to say no, I I I can't go. But they they obviously they wanted me, so they waited until I was finished with this booking, which was five day booking, and then they sent a. I was living in Paris at the time, and they sent a, a an airplane ticket for me to fly to Los Angeles to do this screen test with the director producer of this film, someone by the name of Billy Jack. Oh. Tom Lop. He did a his, his thing was he had just had this tremendous success with Billy Jack. And his name was Tom Laughlin. And um that's how it started. I came here, spent a week, um worked uh, for whatever it was, you know, and uh, what I had to do, I go from they have wig and all of those things tested and et cetera. And then uh, a week later, I did the screen test and went back to Paris. And um, a few days after I got back to Paris, I got a call from who became my agent, theatrical agent, saying that I got the part. And so that's how it started. <laughs> Well, you really, uh, you you told your parents early on you were going to be a star, and you know, I, we're going to get to uh, Never Say Ever Again in a minute, I think. But uh, maybe just touching on the Bonds before we get there, had you ever watched any of the Bond films growing up? Oh yes, uh, Sean Connery. Yes, he was my idol. He was my, you know, whoa! I thought he was the most the greatest. Oh, yeah, he was my uh, Bond when I was growing up. Well, I'm curious, you know, when you um, had Never Say Never Again, you know, obviously on the horizon, were you, like, ultra familiar with Thunderball? Was that a movie you were studying when, you know, they talked about Never Say Never Again to you? I had seen it already, but then, of course, when I found out that this was supposed to be a sequel of it, I again went and watched it, but um, of course there was no, no similarity from our film to Thunderball. So, uh, but still, that's the excuse they used to redo it. Well, I read maybe before we um, speak about getting that, that chat you had and, and ending up working on Never Never, Never, Never Again, I read that you were speaking to sort of Eon about Octopussy. Oh, yes. I, I was called on... Uh, I was um, I went to see Cubby Broccoli. They wanted to see me. And um, um, I was told that uh, they were very interesting, but we did not... We did not uh, come to the point of signing any contracts. So, as I understand, yes, they were going to. They had me in mind to do Octopussy, but uh, when I found out uh, the way I found out about Never Say Never, I was from uh, Irving Kirshner, the director, and he told me that Sean Connery, my idol was coming back to do this Bond film after he had been away for 12 years and had vowed that he would never do another Bond film again. And um, here he was doing another one. So, of course, <laughs> uh, i that's the person I wanted to work with, you know, because I knew that I was very new as an actor and I knew that everyone would be curious to see 
Sean Connery back as Bond. So <laughs> I knew this would be the film to be in. You know, how far along were you in terms of like talks for Octopussy? Like, had you done a screen test? No, I just went and I met with uh, Cubby Broccoli. I went to his uh, his uh, studio, wherever he, his uh, office is, and I met with him and they told me about it. And I met with, uh, I think, his uh, two other people. I don't remember. I was very new. Mm-hmm. And um, so it could have been the director could have been there. I don't know. But it was three people. Cubby Broccoli was uh, the one I remember because he's the one that's most of the talking. And um, I didn't know, I, you know, I didn't take the whole thing seriously with Curry because uh, uh, before I could take it serious, this other thing came along. And so I did not know that Cubby was going to be making as, as I didn't know about these things, how these things were done. So I didn't know that he would be making a formal offer. And I didn't realize this until it was too late when uh, I had already made made a decision to do the Sean Connery Bond film. Well, I mean, I know which film I prefer out of the two. And I think you uh, you chose very wisely with this one. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Never's Never Again fan. And... Uh, uh, yeah, you are my favorite part of the film. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that well, makes I, me feel good. Well, I'm I'm curious then. So you've had that chat with uh, Owen Kirshner. He's approached you about doing the role in the film. Was that it? You were signed at that point, or did you have to do any auditions or anything for the role, or were you Fatima Blush from that moment? Well, the thing about Owen Kirshner is I had met him the first year that I... Uh, came to do my first film right after I did my first film. I met Irving Kirshner. He was doing a film called uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. I don't know if you remember that film with Faye Dunaway. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, he was he was casting for that film, and he I had met him when I was a model because he used to get he used to get mixed up in photography, and so I met him as a model. And um, he was doing this film, and he, so he wanted to see me for this film, which I, I did. And uh, he was very interested in me to play this part because, of course, I was a model, and that was the world of the eyes of Laura Mars. But I was an unknown. Nobody knew who Barbara Carrera was, you know? And so they went with a, a known name, which was Faye Dunaway. But he never forgot me somehow. And um, I was in Manila for the first time to this film festival, Madame Marcus's famous film festival. And I was new, so I wasn't used to all of that fanfare. And it kind of scared me a bit. So... um, this one day I was trying to find a way to escape from um, all of this stuff that was happening. And I, I was, I saw my group come in and I was trying to hide from my group. <laughs> and so I went into the restaurant area and I ran into Irving Kirshner. 
Oh, it was just the person I wanted. I, she said, excuse me, uh, Mr. Kirshner, do you mind if I sit with you here? Because I see you're sitting in a very place where people can't see you. I said, I just, for a while, and I just, I just like, I'm going to hide from some people. <laughs> and so he said, absolutely, absolutely. And he was with um, his location manager, he told me, that there was scouting location. He said that he was there, there was scouting location. He said he's doing a Bond film, and that there was scouting location. And he said, as a matter of fact, there's a part in it that you would fit perfectly for. He said, would you be interested? And I'm, I'm very new, okay? And to have this big photographer asking me if I would be interested in this. He said, would you be interested in um, being in this Bond film with uh, Sean Connery coming back? Oh, Sean Connery. That was a shock for me. And of course I said, yes. He said, well, when are you getting back? To Los Angeles. He said, when you get back, <clears throat> I would like for you to come down to the studio and uh, arrange a meeting with the, with Sean because he's there right now because he, I think he's he's being part of the production of this film. He said, uh, he's there right now and he said, uh, I'd like for you to come to, to the office and meet him. And he said, of course, it will be on his decision, you know, his approval. So I, I did that, and when I went back, um, my agent took over and made an appointment for me <laughs> to to go and meet Mr. Connery in uh, and and Kirshner. And uh, Sean was uh, he was sitting there waiting for me, and he uh, he 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 got up, he took one look at me, and he said, "Hello, how are you?" And he was running off to to a uh, golf to play some golf so he's he turned to crush and he said yeah i approve and he left and i was another five minutes or so and so i i got the part and i know the character changed a little bit before obviously it reached you know when you're giving the performance on set what were what was the character like when they were describing her to you initially a little, the character uh, didn't change a little bit. The character changed completely. Yeah. Um, the, the character that Kirsch told me, because he told me who this character was, he said, she's going to be the, the villainess. And he said that he was, she was one of Ian Fleming's favorite characters that he wrote. He said a lot of the stuff he wrote to her went with the, to the first, person who played Ursula Andres walking out of the water and all of that. But he said, um, he said, it's a wonderful part. He said, and I think you're perfect for it. He said, you're physically perfect for it. And um, so, you know, I was all very excited about this and I wanted to, they were starting a, a month early in, in the, the south of France. Um, to do second unit things and whatnot. And so I decided I wanted to get there. And a month early, I wanted to meet with the costume designer because I had very definite ideas by then who Fatima was. So it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, it, it was, it was 
an exciting, it was an exciting venture for me. And I remember there was not a script written yet, but Kirsch told me, he said, we have the best writer, Semple, somebody, Semple writing the script. He said, then we will, as soon as we get the first draft, we'll send, you know, mm-hmm. we'll send it out to you people. However, I was on the airplane because I wanted to get to to the location, like I said, to speak with the designer. And uh, so I was on this airplane on my way to London. um, And I'm sitting there and I looked up a few and there was, I saw somebody reading the script and I, I happened to see the cover and it it said, never say never again. And I said, oh my God. So I (laughs) went up, it was just across the, the, the ways. And I said to uh, the person, I said, excuse me, but is this uh, the, and he said, yes. And he said, I'm in special effects. He said, and so I just got a, I just got the, the script. He said, and I said, do you mind when you're finishing it? Do you mind if I take a look at it after you're finished? And he said, no, not at all. And of course it was a 10, 11 hour flight. So <clears throat> anyhow, I read the script and <clears throat> nothing as Kirsch had told me about this character was written in it. Nothing at all. She was not at all like this character he told me about. In fact, she was the most horrible, shocking idea. I would never have wanted to play that character for those reasons, not in a Bond film. But anyhow, I suppose Mr. Semple decided that if this is going to be a bad female that she had to have, she couldn't be normal looking. So she, he made her into a ball head lesbian who wore men's clothing and who was just totally very unattractive in every sense of the way. So I, I was devastated when I read it. I was totally devastated. I couldn't wait to land in London, you know. And uh, I took a, you know, they, they give you these flowers, uh, roses on your tray when they bring you your food. And I took a the rose that was on my tray and had my driver who, was, who met me at the airport take me directly because they told me that Kirsch was at the studio and I had him tell, take me directly to the studio because I had to see Kirsch right away about what I had read in this script. And um, I got to the studio and this is the way he tells it. He said that I walked in and I was in tears and I went over and I gave him this rose and I said that I read the script and Fatima and she's awful and I cannot play that. She's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and he reassured me, said, no, we said we've got six writers coming in and we're going to be doing rewrites. And they did. But I must say that Fatima, she developed from scene to scene. Um, the entire, the entire cast that I was working with, the crew that I was working with, they were all, and this including the director, the cinematographer, the 
assistant directors, they were all contributed to the making of Fatima. They all became excited about her. And everybody helped me to create this <laughs> wonderful character, Fatima Blush. I- iconic character, I would say. You, you mentioned about... Um... Well, going to see Sean Connery and getting that nod of approval. I can only imagine the sort of the, your heart being in your mouth during that moment, having to see your idol give the sort of thumbs up for your performances in the film. Like I, I can't imagine what that would have felt like for you in that moment, having to get the uh, thumbs up from Sean Connery. Oh, I suppose it was uh, uh, incredible. I was so happy. I think I must have flown out of there. <laughs> I must have just floated out. I don't even remember driving home. I was very excited about the whole idea. You also mentioned about um, flying down to sort of get, you know, figure out who Fatima Blush was. And you mentioned sort of the the wardrobe a little bit there. And I was going to bring this up later, but the wardrobe for your character is phenomenal. Like it's one of the standout parts of, of of the Fatima Blush character is the outfits that she's wearing. You know, and you had like the furs and, uh, and some of the outfits done by Fendi. That that was great as well. But did you have any input on the um, the wardrobe yourself? I hope so. I hope so. Yes, I um, Charles Node was our was our costume designer. Wonderful. He was incredible. We worked so well together because I would give him this idea. I said, I would tell him. I said, I want everything about her to be lethal. I want to from her shoes to her hat to her nails everything about her i want it to be lethal that i can use as a weapon if needed <laughs> and he took that and the rest he did he found the material you know the metallic material it was very new in the early 80s it was very new and he got this metallic material and made all of Fatima's costume out of this shiny metallic material. And then on the, he, I told him I would like to love the hat. And so that he made a, a kind of a pillbox, had an, on that hat, every little ornament on that hat were a, a weapon, a little weapon there. It could be used to stick in the eye and gouge the eyes out. Or... And then her heels, stiletto, pointed, very, can, as a weapon. Her nails was another weapon. Uh, everything um, about her was lethal. And th- that's what I wanted, and that's what Charles Node was able to accomplish. And we kept her, the colors very basic, black, white, touches of red. Black, white, touches of red. So that's also, you know. Anyhow, he did a great job. And um, it certainly made the character. Because when I got into costume after makeup and everything, I just, that was it for me. Once the makeup was on, and then the costume, I was in character. And I'm curious, um, 
you know, so often you hear people talk about like when a movie is being made and like the script is in flux, it can be, it can cause a lot of issues. Whereas in this case, it feels like because the script was being put together as, you know, you're going through this process, it allowed you a lot more creativity in creating a character. Was that, did it feel like that was the case? That is exactly the case. Exactly the case. Um, it, Irving Kirshner was an amazing director to work with because he was very enthusiastic. So one could come to him and give him an idea and he would take it and he would just, you know, take it to advance it to a high level. And... Um, the the scene of uh, Fatima when she was giving the permission to go and kill his secretary, Sean's uh, Bond's secretary, in the casino there where they were doing the tango. After Bond and, and Kim Domino, they did the tango there in the casino, the Paris, in Monte Carlo. I, my next scene was upstairs with uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer, and he tells me that you can go, I want you to go and dispose of uh, Bond's secretary. And she was very happy about that idea. Now, I, I suggest to Sean, to, to Kirsch, I said, you know, um, I think Fatima should, should do a tango too. She should do, she's got the name, Fatima, she should do a tango. And he said, you know, yeah, yeah, let's see. And so he, Dougie Slocum, a brilliant cinematographer, he says to Dougie, he said, um, where do you think we can, you know, put this tango in? And they came up with the stairs. And they said, well, can you just pretend to do a tango going down the stairs? And I said, yeah, 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 sure, sure. <laughs> And that's where that scene came in. So that scene was completely, it was near the script, you see. That was just one of the many scenes. Another thing is uh, the one day when they all got to know Fatima, the second AD, I said, well, Fatima should have a pet. Don't you think Fatima should have a pet? And we all agree, yes, but what? <laughs> So they came out with a well, we'll have some cobras. <laughs> Snail. And I thought, oh, I am. Well, you, you see, it was already three months in in shooting. So I was completely un, in Fatima's skin. But there was still a part of me that feared snakes, especially the venomous kind, like a, a, a rattlesnake or you know, one of those, the ones that the head blows up, what are they called? Rattlesnake? Cobra's the one with the head, yeah. Cobra, yeah. Cobra. Yeah, well, they, so the next day I go to do this scene, and there's a big cage, and there's a cobra, they're cobras, all these cobras, you want me to, oh, no, 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 no. What about another snake that's not so, you know? And so they came up with the idea of a boa. <laughs> <laughs> a boa, but it was a baby boa, so it was only eight feet long. And 
it was also, we were in London during this shoot, and it was in December, cold. And so these snakes, they hibernate, so they don't, they're not very active, you know? They're very slow moving, and so we decided, okay, we will use a cobra. And then uh, once the scene started, what I did with this snake, I just, it just came, you know, it was just natural. It's what she would do. It, it was her pet. And uh, so all of that was also, none of that was in the script. None of that was the snake thing. And most of her scenes developed out of uh you know, knowing who this <laughs> character was and what motivates her. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm curious at this point now because you, you, know, you, you, you got the role. You're on the set. You're working on a James Bond film, and you're working with your James Bond, Sean Connery. So, what was it like the first day on set? You got to actually act against Sean Connery. Well, the, my, all oh my, the first scene that I did was my death scene and it was that was this you know the one in the warehouse mm-hmm. the scene in the warehouse wow that was my first that was the first scene that I did period I did my first scene was my death scene her, her death scene but I must say that by then I I knew who Fatima was you know I was I had done everything for a month before to create this person in my mind. So by the time we shot that first scene, I knew who she was. I'll ask you the question, Barbara. Who is Fatima Blush to you? She is, um, to me, she was a kind of sociopath, brilliant who had no conscience, like most sociopaths, they don't have a conscience. So she was able to do the most amazing, horrible things and without a conscience. It was like being, it was a child. So I thought of her as being like a, you know, when you're a child, you play and you believe completely. You get into your, you know, when you used to play bandits or whatever and so I just saw her as um, you know someone without a conscience and who enjoyed and enjoyed every moment of everything that she did she enjoyed it completely she got completely involved without judgment of any sort and it took me a while to come to this conclusion about Fatima because in the beginning I really had no idea who she was first of all I had no idea what an assassin was I I couldn't relate to an assassin and it was um, it's what was what made me come to the formula of um, making her like a, a black widow Spider, let's say, for instance, black with a spider, I am told, will always make love to its prey before they kill it. 
And then when they, they get the prey up to its highest place, they kill it. When it's at its highest peak, <laughs> they kill it. And so I thought, ah, there's a part of Fatima that is like that. She makes love to her, the, the prey, the, the men that she has to kill. And then when they get to that point of ecstasy, then she kills them. So that she feels in her mind, and then I mix it with Kali, of course. And Kali is a deity, is a, a Hindu deity uh, who removes all negativity, all negativity. But the way, the only way that she can remove this negativity is to destroy the uh, bad stuff that's already there. Yeah like fires and pestilence and anything like that. So Kali, that's what Kali does. So that was a mixture of Kali and a black widow spider and the praying mantis. So when I went, when he gave me the order, plus Maria Brandau, when he gave me the order to go and kill, she gets very happy about this excited about it because in my mind is because she is going to remove their boring horrible life hmm. and is going to give them a brand new wonderful life the only way she could do that though of course is to remove the life that they have right now so that was what was going through my mind and that's what gave me that energy <laughs> I mean, energy is a good word for it. You you had a, a ton of energy on that film. Um, you are the the pulse of Never Say Never Again. Absolutely. Now, I I interrupted you earlier when you were telling us a story about Sean Connery killing you in your first scene. You know, what was that like with him on set on on the first day and him shooting you? You know, did you did you talk much or was it mostly separate shots? Were you on set together? Well, yes, we were. But in that moment. I was seeing everybody through Fatima's eyes. And I would tell my hairdresser, uh, I would make them into a character that Fatima would be using, you know, and uh, I would tell them all to call me Fatima. So that when I, when that first scene started and when they said, action, when I looked, that Sean, I did not see Sean, I saw James Bond. Hmm. And that was my motivation, you see? For that scene, that was my motivation. I couldn't see my idol, Sean Connery. I saw Bond. <laughs> and, um, and of course, he was right there as well. So we were very present in that scene, that scene was charged with energy. There was a lot of energy in that room that was almost palpable, really. So much so that there's that scene was supposed to be broken up in half and the first cut was supposed to be when he throw the newspaper at her. When she thro he throws the newspaper, she throws the newspaper at him. Oh, yeah, he throws the newspaper. He signed 
that she is the she is the number one. Remember that scene? Mm-hmm. She's the one lover he's ever had. That was a scene that should have been cut and then continued. However, we were just, it was in such a, it was so amazing what was happening. It was so real. It was so, that uh, everybody got into that scene. So when he threw me this paper and I went down very fast to pick it up, that was not rehearsed. It was not at all rehearsed. But the camera operator, who he, he was using a shoulder camera, he told me, he said, my camera is like it had a life of its own. It just went right with you, Barbara. It didn't stop, Fatima. It just went right with you. And uh, that scene just kept going through until it was finished. And even after it was finished, the director, everybody was so into that he forgot to say cut. So uh, in the AD had to say cut, say cut, and say cut, and everybody was like, "Whoa, you nobody spoke." <laughs> it was something really amazing that happened in that first scene. It was truly amazing, and that is my memory of that first scene. That's unbelievable, and I mean, Fatima, the character is like. As Scott kind of said, she is this bolt of lightning a lightning in the movie and seems to be having more fun than any other character in the movie. Like Fatima is having the time of her life. I'm curious, when you get to go kind of big like that, like a big villain here, is there any point where you kind of go too far? Like, was there ever moments where you said, oh, like, this is a little too big? Or did anything work for Fatima? No, you, 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 I, I was not there thinking like that anymore. I was Fatima. <laughs> <laughs> Fatima became me. I, you know, so I was not judging her. Oh, is this a, no, no, I was just doing what I felt Fatima would do and enjoying it thoroughly because of the reason I told you. Because I felt that I was doing great things for these people I was killing. Right. I was giving them a, a beautiful new life. That's what I, as the actor, believed in my mind so that I could give Fatima that feeling of, you know, of being able to do what she's told to do and not make her a a bad woman for doing it. It was like a thought. Speaking of, um, you know, bad things, um, you have an amazing scene when you are dressed up as the nurse beating up Gavin O'Hurley's character. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about shooting that sequence because it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, is, that is actually, that's just it, you know, the thing with every one of those scenes, we were so into it that it became, she took over. Her energy took over, and it just made it just made these things. It just made it work, <laughs> and and without malice. That's the amazing thing about it, you know. She was so bad, but without malice. You know, she was bad. She was the kind of bad person who could get away with anything, and you don't. That was extraordinary. You know, the thing is, I, I, um, I found out that 
everybody loved this character. I found out that not only children, adults, but uh, nuns, nuns, uh, my my guru, <laughs> my teacher, told me, you, see, you know, I saw your film and I couldn't wait to see what you were going to do bad next. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it's amazing because they they did not they they felt they did not feel. You see, a lot of time, uh, audience, they feel things that you feel, and if you feel it, the actor, if the actor feel it, the audience will feel it. And I learned this. I learned this. Anyhow, um, because if you do it from the heart. The audience always feels it, you know. They don't know why, but they feel it. They think it's because of whatever. Well, speaking of um, well, speaking of making an impact and the audience feeling it, I think uh, one of the things I wanted to discuss with you, Barbara, was just the stunts in the film because you're actually involved in quite a few sequences. I was but looking, I actually went and saw this film in the cinema the other day here in London. We played it in the cinema here, so it was great to see you on the big screen. And um, you know there was there was a stunt you driving the car, which we mentioned earlier. Also, you're on the sort of uh, the water skis, and also the motorbike sequence. So I, my question was more towards sort of what stunts did you get involved with on the set? Because you know it's quite a dangerous thing to do some of these stunts, especially the motorbike sequence as well. Like, what bits were you? Do you recall? Okay, <laughs> I'll start with the first one which is the very first thing that I did, which was the second unit. Um, I got there and Kurt said, listen, I have second unit here. Would you mind doing a car scene? Uh, they already started it with the, your, your, your stunt girl, your stunt double. But um, we would like to get you, you know, driving this down the, down the, and, uh, so I said, sure. And so I, I arrived there in the morning to sh do this film. We were in Villefranche. And uh, it was a Renault Turbo. They had uh, several of them there. It was a stick shift. And I've never driven a stick shift before. No, never? Uh, it's a stick shift, but I don't know how. And anyhow, to make a long story short. After I destroyed everything in the in the street that we were shooting, and destroyed eight gearboxes, we we finally you know got the scene. But it took a while because I I I, I couldn't uh, <laughs> control this car. I <laughs> you know, in Villefranche, you know, in the France, they have all these carts, you know, veg vegetables and fruit that they sell, you know, these vegetable fruit carts on mm -hmm. the street. Well, there were one or two of those in the street where we were shoot shooting, and, and they told them to stay in the scene. It's okay because they weren't in our way. And if we got them in this, it was okay. Anyhow, those were, that was the first thing I ran into and destroyed. This poor man. Vegetables, fruit tarts, oranges and apples and everything just all over the the street. That was the first thing I destroyed. I ran into it. I couldn't stop the car. 
I'm right into this uh, fruit stand. Just destroy that. And um, we just kept trying and trying again. So in the end, I destroyed eight gearboxes from the Renault Turbo. <laughs> well, now I need to know, have you learned to drive stick since? No, no. I just, I don't like it anyhow. So I never bothered. Fair enough. I could now if I if I if I was forced to I could, but I don't like to. No no one enjoys it. I could I could I could I know how now how to do that. I know that you have to push down on the brake at the same time, do the, the pedal at the same time as you're moving the your gears and all of that. That I <laughs> it was hieroglyphics for me. I, I can't believe you got away with destroying eight gearboxes, but that's uh, that's James Bond money right there. Yeah, the guy, it's it, it's a gamble. It was a great publicity for this woman. <laughs> you know that was, they were they were. Uh, I mean, to have their film, their car in a Bond film, they already know that that's millions of dollars of publicity. So mm -hmm. I don't think they mind just supplying us with whatever we need. They didn't want us to get another car. Another make, so they kept the uh, you know they had it for us there, and we ended yeah, up going sure. to eight of them. <laughs> and um, you, and I mentioned the the water ski sequence as well. Like, there's definitely some shots of you on on the water ski. So were you out on the water for a while? Not all of it. Yes, I was always on the water, but I did not do those stunts. <laughs> the stunts that you saw that be the beautiful stunt like coming up on the ramp and all of that, that was all kind of uh, special effects organized. It was all planned, edited, you know. Um, and for this stunt of going and, and, and doing the, the beautiful uh, kind of ballet movement on the water, you know, with the one ski, well, that was that part because they shot it from the distance. Was uh, one of the number one performers of uh, water uh, ballet performers. You know that they did these on skis in Florida. They have them a lot. Is there? They perform water ballets and beautiful to see them perform. Well, they got very good. One of their top people to be my double on that and what about the underwater sequences how much of that did you actually have to do well everything that you saw me is that you yes i had to do it all of course the underwater that uh to begin with that was a huge obstacle because neither sean or i were too familiar with underwater diving and um, we, when we were shooting in the south of France, they were trying since then to get the the uh, get us to you know let them show us uh, to have a the professional show us how to go under underwater diving with scuba diving. Is that what it's called, scuba diving? Yep. Um, and um, and. Sean wasn't too hot about doing it, and, and so neither was I, you know. So we kept making excuses, and after a month or so, we had to change location and go to the Bahamas, where it was that we were going to make this scene. 
And we got there and uh, we still hadn't learned how to use the equipment or anything. We still hadn't been under not even 10 feet of water. So finally, uh, the day or two before we were supposed to shoot this scene <coughs> in the Bahamas, um, they realized what the problem was. So the 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 man who was uh, the chief rather of this underwater group of incredible divers, um, they they were the ones who did on the, the Poseidon adventure and all those underwater incredible underwater things. It was this crew, and he came and he said, "Okay, now let's let's start on the shore." He said, "I'm going to." I'm going to be right with you. He said, I'm going to show you how to put your equipment on, how to breathe through it. And he came me, he ran me through all of the logistics. And he said, okay, now we're just going to, he said, put it on, and we're just going to start here in the sh shallow, and we'll just go, we're both good, just stay on. And he's, um, and so we go under, and it's uh, in the shallow area, and he's coaxing me out, you know, a little further. And then all of a sudden he starts to show me these beautiful uh, fish, you know, all beautiful design and all these beautiful underwater things. And I became so involved in what he was showing me that I didn't realize we were already under 50 feet, <laughs> that we were under 50 feet. And I was enjoying it so much. So I was able to uh, overcome my fear. So, I, uh, so by the time we did this thing, I was ready. I was ready. I was, in fact, uh, very excited about doing the underwater uh, scenes. Uh, what I didn't know is that uh, we have a real shock. <laughs> it was a real 18-foot shock. <laughs> <laughs> Not stressful at all. But, you know, they they reassured me. What they did was, you know, they had it uh, at the bottom of uh, 50 feet of the ocean. They had it at, uh, tied with just a bit of enough rope to a stake and just enough of it to go around in circle, you know, uh, uh, to stay alive, to go around in circle. The thing is, uh, I, I discovered, I was told, that sharks... Um, their fins, in order to breathe, they have to go very fast, like lightning. You know how they, how fast they are? Oh, yeah. Because if they don't go fast, they, they become very weak, and eventually, if they can't go fast, eventually they will die. But um, they become very weak. So what they did with this particular shark, they had it on the water, I think for about two days or so, circling around. And so by the time we worked with it, it was very docile. You know, it was very, very weak. And I remember going over and touching its skin. <laughs> and it was like needles. It was like touching needles. It was um, the roughest, I mean, literally needles. No wonder when they rub against you, they just take your skin off because it's all needles. But um, we got through that. Sean had a little bit of a problem, but uh, he got through it too. We got through it. Well, speaking of Sean, I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of dig into 
you getting to work with your James Bond. Now, we spoke a little bit about that first scene you did. Um, but just, you know, what are some of your memories of just spending time with Sean Connery on the set? Uh, you know, any particular fun uh, things that happened? Hmm. Well, you know, we were on the set, you know, when you're working on the set, you are so into your character. You're, you're, you, you are, you don't uh, react no, like normal, like your normal self. Because you're seeing everything from your character point of view. So the only time I really uh, was being around Sean when he was like himself, that I was seeing him like that, was on the weekend when we weren't working. I, I had rented this incredible villa, Villa Isoleta, in um, in the south of France. And um, Cap, uh, Cap Dai. And, uh, and I would have, and I had a great staff of cook and everything, and I would have them make us uh, delicious lunches on Sunday and invite, invite the immediate cast and, and director. Uh, so Sean, of course, and Micheline, they would come. I, I spent more time with Micheline on the set, actually, than Sean, because uh, she was always around. She was around all the time, 24-7. So um, hanging around like that, we didn't have time for hanging around like that, you know. Uh, I, I I didn't allow myself that time. Let's just put it that way. I just I didn't allow myself to go and hang around and. Uh, no, I was too into Fatima's life. <laughs> well, you you did get to hang around with Sean a little bit uh, in what I think was. Quite, quite a comical. Well, the 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 boat scene jumps out at me as one of the the, the funnier moments in the film, where you and and Fatima and Bl- uh, and Bond get together in the back of the boat, and those like scenes of you guys hanging out from the side of the doorway. I just found that to be quite quite a lot of fun. Was that you and Sean doing that together? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I wondered if it was like a stand-in or something. That was all. Yeah. You think it could have been a double? <laughs> oh, you never know. You never know. Uh, you see a lot more of you than you do of Bond. <laughs> well, no. Wherever you see myself and Sean, it was us. It was us. The only time is that time I told you about the, the double, the the stunt double. But other than that, we all had stunt doubles, of course. But it, it, it was only for the very quick distance scenes, you know? I just had a question about Max von Sydow, who obviously was Blofeld, and you do share a scene with him, but I was curious if there was anything that was maybe deleted or if you had any experiences just working with him on set. He was wonderful to work with, but you know, everybody I worked with was wonderful to work with because they were completely their their character, you know. And Max von Sydow is one of those characters those actors that I have admired and respected his work for all my life, of course, and uh, to have him there to like, to have shown all these great actors that I just, to me, it was like being in heaven. And he was such a professional. They're all, of course, professional. He was, uh, he, it was only one day of shoot with him. But um, it was memorable. It was wonderful. 
And what about um, Kevin McClory, the producer, who's like a really kind of well-known figure within the world of the Bond universe? But I would just love to know firsthand, you know, any experiences you had with him as a producer? Oh, what a wonderful human being. Kevin McClory. He was the best producer because he was there, hands-on. Whatever we needed, we knew, we knew that we could go to Kevin and it'll get done. Kevin, he was enthusiastic because he felt very much responsible for this film because it was, you know, it was he who uh, was on the Thunderbolt and anyhow, he has his whole story. It's very involved. And um, he was the one among the others who were being sued for doing this film that he had a fight to do. But anyhow, that was their problem. Um, Kevin, uh, he was incredible. I really loved Kevin. And uh, I, re I remember uh, always he was so interesting. You know, the only thing you say as hanging around, yes, at lunchtime we would all hang around because we'd sit around and we'd all have lunch together. And so that's a time when we would hang around. Anyhow, Kevin would tell the story, wonderful stories about his adventures to Bhutan and when Bhutan was completely closed from the world. And uh, he invited me to Ireland. When the film was opening in Ireland, I went to do the publicity for it. And I went with my husband at the time, um, Nicholas Mavrolian, and um, we went to, I think it was uh, Dublin, yeah. It was Dublin. And he, Kevin, he was wonderful with the press. I mean, he knew how to create publicity. He met us at the airport and uh, with two police escorts, um, they, on their motorcycle, and they escorted us into town to our hotel with the siren going <laughs> about 100 miles an hour, all the way through to the hotel in Dublin. And uh, he, he was just a delight, Kevin. He was just, I miss him. I, I miss, I, because I stayed friends with Kevin until he died. Well, I, I did have a question about sort of Kevin and the the issues surrounding the film a little bit. Um, I mean, as you said, they're sort of storied now. We all know what happened with the film in that sense. But when you were filming, was there a sense on the set of the ongoing issues that they were facing trying to make the film? Or were you all just sort of cracking on with the shoot? One could not ignore the the fact that there was this big battle going on between the broccolis and uh the uh our 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 film and because it was in the press every single day in london you know where we were however uh, and they were they were doing what they do they were creating all these big scandals etc but we were so involved with our work that the actors i'm speaking about and uh, the, our crew, we were too involved in our work to pay attention to it, you know? So we knew it was happening, 
We couldn't avoid it, of course. You couldn't avoid it. It was everywhere. But uh, we didn't keep up with it. We didn't uh, get involved in any way. Sure. Um, well, I think before we move on to uh, another film, I just want to ask you a couple of quick questions about the Never Never Again. I mean, what looking back on it now, what was your favorite moment from making the film? Okay. I suppose the first scene. But then I liked the casino scene too. I liked them all. Scott, what can I it's, say? It's, it's a fair answer. I can't blame you for that. Um, and the other question I had was sort of, you know, now that the film is out there in the world, what what's your thoughts on the film looking back on it? You know, it came out the same year as Octopussy. I know which one I prefer. But uh, what do you think about Never Ever Again? How do you How do you regard it? I think it's one of the good ones. I think it's one of the best ones. They're all, you know, all of the Bond films are special because they're Bond. I think what makes this one stand out simply because uh, the title, Never Say Never Again, <laughs> Bond, <laughs> Sean Connery said he would never, 12 years before he said, I would never ever do another Bond film again. And the fact that he came back 12 years later and did it made it very exciting. And so I think that the film still holds up today. Definitely. I was going I, I, I to ask you, uh, I read somewhere a while ago, but I, I wanted to ask your opinion. What do you think about the, uh, the song from the film? That was the only thing I was a bit disappointed in. I didn't care. You know, because um, I knew firsthand that every major music person wanted to do the music for Bond. Everybody, some of them even found out that they could, I could be, might be an influence, so they would try to find my agent and call, call me through my agent and everything. So when they went up, when they chose what they did, uh, Oh, that wasn't my favorite. The music wasn't my favorite. Let's put it that way. That was, that was very professionally put. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> we interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, Barbara Carrera is all the rage on Spy Hearts these days, and so we are releasing our full-length commentary for Condor Man. Take flight, listeners. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true Spy Hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, I wanted to jump over to another movie and just ask a few questions just about the movie Condor Man, which we did cover on the podcast and has like a real cult fandom built up around it. A lot of people are huge fans of Condor Man. I was just curious, you know, how did your involvement happen with that film? 
first of all, I was very, very new. Yeah. I was in business maybe two, three years, if it's that much. And so I was eager to just work, to get on film, you know, because uh, as a new actor, that's what you need. You need to get on on film. So this uh, film, this uh, project came up for um, from Disney. Um, they were doing it at the Fox. Yeah, Fox was doing it. And uh, I think it was Fox. So anyhow, I was still living in Paris, and I had not decided to become really uh, seriously an actor. Seriously, seriously, you know? So I was still living in Paris. And um, so they, I flew down here for to meet with Charles Jarrett and uh, over at Fox Studio. And um, I did a, I, I read with uh, Christopher Walken. <laughs> we were both. He was. I think he was more new. He was new. No, he was been in the business a little longer than I had. You know the actor Christopher Walken? Of course, yeah. Yeah. So he and I read for this, for Condor Man. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting it mixed up with another film. Ah, sorry, sorry. Oh, no worries. You almost made my day there, Barbara. That would would have been the amazing version of Condor Man we never had. Yeah, this is... this did happen with Charles Jarrett, but it was another film. <laughs> no, it was part of it was Condor Man, except uh, the part with uh, Christopher Walken. That was something else. It was something different. Anyhow, uh, okay, I think so. <laughs> it was Forty years ago, Scott. <laughs> um, I think. Uh, anyhow. Um, I went up to see Charles Jarrett over at Fox. I think he was there and uh, about Condor Man. And then I went and had to go over to Disney and had a screen test also. And then um, I went back to Paris and they, they called me and said uh, that I got this film with Disney called Condor Man. <laughs> and I have to play this uh, Russian called Natalia Rambova. <laughs> And uh, it was great locations, and I was very excited about it, actually, because I was new, and the people that were I was working with are, are all people that I had heard of and I knew of, and I'd seen their film, like Oliver Reed. I had already seen him in a, a number of wonderful films. So, uh, you know, it was a... I was looking forward to it, and the locations were fantastic. But uh, it was, I always, you know, I, back then, I, I don't think the same way now, but back then, I thought, you know, I want to be a very serious actress. If I'm going to do this business, I want to be a serious actress. And to me, Disney was a little too frivolous. <laughs> <laughs> that was my train of thought at the time. So um, I probably thought, well, this is such a, I never knew that anybody, I I know that there's a cult there for Condorman, but I never knew that it would ever become that kind of a film. (laughs) I just never become that kind of a film. 
you can you can never predict those things. And I'm just curious, looking at you know, as you said, you were looking at it from a serious acting point of view. When you are going into a a story like this, it's a pretty like crazy comedic story, but you have to kind of play the gravity in this movie. What was it like, kind of trying to find you know an authentic, believable character when you're kind of surrounded by a lot of you know big stunts and crazy costumes and all that sort of stuff? <laughs> you just do your best. <laughs> <laughs> you just do your best. <laughs> in each film, each situation is different. And of course, um, from the actor's point of view, what the actor wants more than anything else is to be able to believe what is this new life. You know, to believe it as as real, to be a part of it as real and not as make-believe. And so the, one strives for that, and you do your best to try to, to achieve that. You know what? Of course, you're as good as your script. So you, if the dialogues are a little weird, you have to say them. You have to let them make sense. <laughs> and uh, so, but you just do your best. Did you um now your your co-star in Condor Man, its its lead, Michael Crawford? It was one of his first film. Uh, debuts. I mean, he'd obviously been on stage as Phantom of the Opera and things like that, but did you get a sense uh, from him that he was quite nervous as well? Because you were both basically starting out on, on that sort of portion of your careers. But he told me that he had already done a lot of things like Hello Dolly, I think he said he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did, he was uh, he said he'd, he had a sitcom that he did for a long time in London. So he had some experience, but his experience was playing this. Um, he 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 chose to play this um, kind of a weird 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 kind of character, you know, like a geek kind of a character, mm-hmm. like a geek. Right. But in fact, you know, he's a very he's a serious, a quite a, a good a serious actor, but. In this, he was like this little, he was kind of a geeky guy, you know. And Oliver Reed was this, like this. <laughs> he was like uh, David and Goliath. Michael Crawford and Oliver Reed was like David and Goliath. And the first evening that we met, Oliver was in Monte Carlo, and um, Charles Jarrett invited all of us to lunch in this lovely restaurant in Monte Carlo. And Oliver had arrived late. And he walked in impeccably dressed, beautifully dressed with a suit and tie. And he had his, with his, his, his bodyguard, he said he was, or his something like that by the name of Richie, who turned out to be really his drinking companion. But, um, <laughs> So uh, Oliver walks in impeccably dressed, and we were waiting for him to come before we had a toast. So shortly, a few words were spoken, and then we had a toast, and then a second glass. And before the second glass had ended, Oliver just became another person. 
he, I think he was very drunk, or maybe he was drinking early before he arrived, but he got very drunk. And he stood up at one point at the table and ripped off his shirt. <laughs> his buttons went flying everywhere. <laughs> Just ripped off his jacket and his shirt. And then he decided to jump on the chandelier that was above our table. And started swinging from the chandelier. And then after that, he went like, arm wrestle everybody and poor Michael, he went after Michael. <laughs> and I was surprised. Michael held his ground. He didn't let him you know <laughs> it was very funny. He was the condor man. <laughs> that was my introduction to Mr. Reed, Oliver Reed. <laughs> you can't write that stuff. Uh, but yeah, overall just sort of a fond memory of working on Condor Man, at least looking back on it. Like, uh, an early job, but a fun time. It was all incredibly fun. I mean, I had the time of my life. Don't forget, I was very new. Mm-hmm. And um, we started out in Monte Carlo. And I stayed at the Hotel de Paris, which is one of the great hotels in Monte Carlo. Spent uh, two months, I think, we were there. Or a month, a month. At the Hotel de Paris, we would go to the casino, which was right next door. <laughs> and then from there, uh, we, were, we went to Zermatt. And uh, I had my driver, Jean-Pierre Casson was one of the actors, he was a French actor. And he asked if he could come with me. So we, we went in my car, we had a driver, it drove us all the way. There we stopped into, I think we stopped in uh, in Florence and had lunch and then con- continued on to Zermatt, to Switzerland. And uh, that was another incredible <laughs> trip in Zermatt. Uh, amazing experience with Oliver up of Zermatt. And uh, from there we went uh, to London where we finished the film. Um, no, we went to Paris. Yeah, we went to Paris, and then we went to London. It was some great locations, and all incredible, you know. Fantastic hotels. I must say, Disney doesn't spare any... We were all very well taken care of. <laughs> if only they would put the film on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I, Disney, they take good care of the performers. Right. And as we just head towards the wrap, I wanted to ask just a quick question about shooting your um, appearance on That 70s Show with Maude Adams, Christina Wayborn, and <laughs> Tanya Roberts. If you could just talk about shooting that, because that was an amazing moment. I've never forgotten it since seeing it back, you know, when the show aired. And I would just love to know about shooting that, that little bit. Well... I remember I needed some money very badly, and that came that came in very handy, handy, <laughs> came in very handy. But it was fun because it was with these other Bond girls, which normally I don't get to be part of any group of anything, you know. I don't like that I just be part of a group of anything, but that's the way it turned out. I had known Maud because we were both the same model agency in New York. 
um, Eileen Thorne. And uh, Christina, I had I met Christina Weber, and I liked them both. And uh, the other one whose show it was, uh, who was on, uh, who, who died recently, the other actress, what, do you know her name? Yeah, Tanya Roberts. Tanya Roberts. So it was, uh, and it was all, uh, uh, it was all a, a cast of people who became really very successful after as well. Um, Kusher and his wife now, you know, um, they were they were part of that show. Anyhow, it's uh, it it's run it runs like mad. I get always residuals from it. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, here in the United States, it's always on that seventy show. I'm always getting residuals from it. It's the beauty of those syndication dollars. Yeah. Mm. But it was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. It- you know, you've you've done some comedy because obviously, you know, Condor Man um, is obviously comedic, and Fatima Blush is um, a character who brings a lot of comedy just to the scenario she's in. Mm. Was it very natural doing comedy on that '70s show? You know, if it's in the if it's on the pages, it's possible. The scene has to be funny, otherwise, you're not funny. You know, it all depends on how it's written. Right. I, I don't I think anyone who tries to be funny are not funny at all. I've noticed I've noticed great comedians and uh they just they take advantage of the situation that they're in and it, if the situation is funny they are very funny. <laughs> but uh, I have discovered that one is as funny as the the material. Well, I think um before we wrap up Barbara because I know you you got a, a busy day ahead of you I just wanted to ask a couple of quick fire questions that we ask all of our guests now we are a spy movie podcast so the first question I need to ask you is what is your favorite spy movie my favorite spy movie <laughs> uh Peter Sellers <laughs> I love the Pink Panther series. <laughs> Is that what you mean? That kind of spy movie? Sure. If, that, if that's your favorite, that's your favorite. I, absolutely. I, it, it's your choice, so I, I can't begrudge you for it. Um, we recently watched uh, the uh, James Bond Casino Royale film with Peter Sellers in it. It's a very interesting film. Of course, the James Bond series. I mean, I love all of them. That, doesn't, that, that is not uh, comparable. Uh, would that be considered a spy film, yeah? Absolutely. Bond, yeah. That's why we're here. Well, okay, then, of course, the Bond is my favorite. Okay. Which which Bond film? Well, never say never, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I love the answer. It's cheeky, but I love it. <laughs> no, I love uh, quite a few of them. I love all of the ones that Sean Connery did. Mm-hmm. Because I saw them all uh, from... Uh, the first one was uh, Dr. No, yeah? Yep, yeah. Dr. No. And then uh, Thunderball, was it the second one, Thunderball? From Russia with Love was second. From Russia with Love, yeah. Sean said that is his favorite, from Russia with Love. And I agree, it's quite fun, fantastic. Have you been uh, keeping up with the Bond film since? Have you watched the, the most recent one? Yes, yes, of course, because, you know, I, I still I have to vote for the Academy. 
And so this year, um, uh, the, the, this new Bond film, To Die For, um, it got nominated for the song. Mm-hmm. And also for, uh, I think, visual effects or one of the technical awards. So, you know, we have to study all these films before. We should before we vote for them. So we feel that they're getting the right. I I just have to say, as a film fan, I very much appreciate you saying that because so often you hear about, you know, Academy members who don't watch the movies when they vote. And it's great to hear someone talk about, you know, that you like to keep track of everything before you vote. That's great. I love that. You know something, Scott, it's something that I I really uh, am aware of as well. And I think it's, I think it is the... I think it is so wrong, you know. I think that if uh, you're going to if you're going to vote, then you've got to make it as a member. It is a responsibility that you should make it go to the right recipients, you know. After all, the Oscar we represent excellence. That's what we represent. I know lately there's been a lot of things that has thrown the dignity and the 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 uh thrown the the academy into an ugly light but our objective is to award excellence and it does one can't do that if one just goes and read the hype on a film and decide oh, okay that they think it's great so i'm going to vote from that from the hype i think one should take the time to look at it all very seriously in all the categories so that when you do vote, you know that you're giving it to the person that you believe or to the, to the film that you believe is worthy of it. And that can't be done unless it is studied, unless it is watched closely. You know, and it really, it, it's, it disturbs me because Lately, a lot of uh, weird films have been getting in there because, and I know the reason is because the people have not been watching, the ones who are supposed to be watching these things to vote have not been watching them. They've been listening to hype. Right, for sure. Well, I, I, I did want to ask, and I always ask our guests this question as well. Can you name us a film or a TV show that you've worked on from your filmography that maybe doesn't get the love that Never Say Never Again or Condor Man gets that you really liked doing and you think people should check out? I mean, I watched uh, Lone Wolf McQuaid today with Chuck Norris and um, uh, and David Car- Carradine. I Carradine, that's it. Um, and I think that was a, a great film, actually. I really had a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> good, good. Uh, let me see. Gosh. The Island of Dr. Moreau was one of my favorites because of the cast. Um, I just got my mind goes blank. I can't think of <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I haven't checked out Island of Dr. Moreau. I'll, I'll put that on my list. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, I, if people haven't seen Condor Man, I would always send them that way first. But uh, yeah, Lone Wolf McQuaid was a lot of fun. I think maybe I should go look at Condor Man. <laughs> Maybe I I changed my mind about it. Uh, I I went to one of those 
Well, I mean, it, it's still getting love now. It, it it was even featured in one of the Toy Stories. I, I've been getting a lot of fan mail on Condorman, and I'm thinking, my God, what is happening here? <laughs> Condorman <laughs> is making renaissance. And uh, I had no idea that people were into Condorman. It was not one of my favorite films. I had loved doing it, but I didn't think it. I thought it was kind of, uh, you know, stuff. <laughs> It's good to see that the film is still taking flight even now. Yes, there seems to be a, a renaissance when it's going on. That uh, Condor Man, as well as Island of Doctor Morrow, also is getting a lot of the. Uh, I've been getting a lot of attention from that from them. I can tell by the fan mail, and that I get you know what people are looking at. Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised because, frankly, if you just look at your performances in, in Condor Man, Never, Never Again, uh, terrific stuff. So if you're in it, it's probably something to see. Um, Barbara, I just want to thank you, um, really, from the bottom of my heart for, you know, taking the time to speak to us today from between two continents, three countries we've put this call together. You don't do many interviews anymore, and we're so thankful you took the time to speak to us. Well, I'm glad I was able to, you know. I'm glad I was able to. You got me at the right time. I normally don't do this, Scott. I stopped doing it for quite a few years ago. But uh, I'm glad that you had the right time. (laughs) I'm glad too, if that that was what it was. Yeah, I'm very thankful that I did. So, um, well, I mean, Barbara, before we let you go, again, just... I want to thank you for your time. What is it are you working on? I think at the moment, I know you've got barbaracarreraart.com where you're doing some artwork on there, but is there anything else you're working on as well? Just my art. You know, I decided to retire a few years ago. I decided to retire. I went into a bit of a, of a, a little bit of illness there. And it made me, I don't know, I just decided to change my perspective and everything. And I decided to retire. I had a, it was a great run, a wonderful run. And I'd like to retire when I'm still at the top. So I've been dedicating my time mostly to painting. I've been painting a lot. Well, if you know, I'm glad you're finding fulfillment with that. And you, know, you can check out uh, Barbara's artwork at barbaracarreraart.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes of the interview. But um, Again, Barbara, I just want to thank you. And I have to say, I am definitely going to put you in my memoirs as number one. Yeah, this was a great honor. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you very much, God. You have a beautiful rest of, well, is it early morning for you now, huh? No, this is the, this is the middle of the night. So, uh, yeah, you, you, you are my last uh, person to talk to before I go to bed. So uh, thank you for that, Barbara. All right. And you, Cam, you're just about three hours, are you, difference? Two hours difference? Uh, I'm the same time as you are, actually. Ah, all right. So, all right. You're the lucky one. <laughs> That's right. I got a whole night ahead of me. That's right. Scott is going to have to put two sticks in his eyes to keep them open. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's not a problem. When I get to speak to people like you, Barbara. I will stay up. It's not a problem at all. So, um, yeah, thank you for, and, and I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll cut the recording in a second, but like, just thank you for, for honestly, for taking the time because you know, I'm, I've been a massive fan of Condor Man for, for a long time. And just to, 
just to speak to you has been sort of a goal i i've i've wanted to do and i don't really get to go to conventions or anything like that so again just thank you well it's my pleasure it's my pleasure god bless you both have a beautiful rest of this year <laughs> thank you so much bye bye take care well there you go folks that was our chat with the one and only barbara carrera and wow uh tick that one off my dream list right there i i can't believe that happened yeah this was really amazing and when you watch the film fatima blush is such a like explosive character as i said in the interview like this live wire of electricity that was that a pun? just brings uh yes sure <laughs> so like every scene she's in just comes to life and i was really interested to hear her talk about how because the script of this movie i mean it's famously you know they had a lot of writers trying to put this thing together to get it essentially shot um about how that sort of you know lack of solid screenplay initially up front allowed a lot more creativity on her end as well as her collaborators to create a truly memorable character this didn't feel like fiona volpe 2.0 it felt like an entirely new creation and i think when you look at never say never again people often look at it as kind of the thunderball remake but that character is entirely original. Yeah, and and you know, we said it to Barbara and we said it in our review with Phil Noble Jr. She is the beating soul of this film and it, it's a damn shame when she leaves the film. Going back to your exploding pun just then. And mm. hearing about the creation of the character and how it was actually a lot more flexible than I thought it was because my experience and the behind-the-scenes knowledge that I knew of this film was that it, it was like they could barely do anything. They were so, like, restricted by litigation and all this sort of stuff. But hearing that it was more of a collaborative process and, and a lot of Fatima Blush was discovered on the day in, in acting, in the process of acting, um, actually just goes to show the sort of caliber of actor that Barbara Carrera is because she was able to flourish in what could have been quite, uh, quite a predicament for a different actor. And also just how committed she was to the character. I think a lot of people, maybe who aren't necessarily Bond fans, look at Bond movies and go, well, just the actor showing up and having fun and then walking off the set. Whereas, you know, she was inhabiting Fatima and said, you know, she stayed in character pretty much the entirety of the shoot. And so it shows you that there was a real, you know, attempt to understand the psychology of this character, to make them feel like someone that the audience could buy. And I think that effort, like you can feel it on screen. You can feel that this is an actor who recognizes they have a delicious opportunity here to create a character and really just, you know, goes nuts with it. And, you know, let's not forget that she is a fan of the Bond films. She wanted to work with Connery because Connery was her Bond growing up. So she saw Thunderball. Yeah. She knew who Fiona Volpe was. You, you see people doing like these remakes on TV now, or reboots or whatever. And they're like playing a character someone else has played before. And they're like, oh, no, I didn't really watch the original show. Or, I, oh, I watched a couple of episodes because they don't want to do like a impersonation. But, you know, and, and but she had seen the character that this the Fatima Blush evolved from. And, and again, that could be quite intimidating for an actor to step into those shoes. I mean, luckily, it's kind of a different character in some ways. But in some other ways, it's basically the same thing. But she manages to put a, a stamp on it that, that creates this difference between Fatima Blush and Fiona Volpe. It feels 
like that extra step closer to like a Xenia on a top mm. than really the Fiona Volpe character was. You know, yes, it was kind of the seductress, the evil female villain in Thunderball, but this feels closer to that kind of like almost like a rabid man-eater style of villain you would get, you know, just a handful of years later, I guess, just over a decade later in Goldeneye. Yeah, it's a shame we didn't get a chance to ask her about that sort of Goldeneye connection because she said she's watched all the James Bond films, even up to No Time to Die. So, And, and I've said online many times before, I have no doubt that Xenia Top has taken some notes from Fatima Blush. It feels like it. It really does. And... One thing I thought was interesting was, you know, she was up for the role, the lead role in Octopussy. And you can argue like, well, that role would have been, um, you know, like have more screen time. And you obviously get the movie named after your character. But like, honestly, I think it's going to be always way more fun to play the villain than like the Octopussy role. I think what she got to do with Fatima Blush, obviously she had a lot of creativity there and just... Scene for scene, she is just <laughs> like a live wire in all these moments, whereas you don't get that as much if you're the lead of Octopussy. I really think she made the smart choice in terms of an actress wanting to do something really dynamic and fun. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, agree. I think it was definitely the right choice, but that's because I prefer this film to Octopussy. I still don't think I can understand the plot of Octopussy despite watching it numerous times. But, you know, you, you look at um, Kim Bassinger, in Never Said Ever Again. Mm. She is the, the good Bond girl in the film. And as we said in the episode, she doesn't really get a good go at the film. It's more the script, I think, than than the actor. But um, out of the two leading ladies in that film, she is overshadowed by Barbara Carrera. Yeah, and by all accounts I've heard, like Kim Basinger did not have a good time making that film. And I believe doesn't uh, talk about it to this day. So that's unfortunate. Whereas it feels like um, Barbara Carrera had a great experience making it. Really enjoyed working with people like, uh, you know, Kevin McClory, Irvin Kirshner, all her, her collaborators. And to this day has nothing but positive stories and fun stories about that experience. Yes. And it's quite refreshing to hear a positive story about Kevin McClory. Mm. That rhymed. But. people always sort of like slag him off online and and I'm not going to get into the who did what of it all but she felt very safe as him with him as a producer Um, and I know there's many McClory jokes you can make but ultimately he's taking care of his actors and that's a good thing yeah and you get a sense like he was a very generous producer which isn't always the case with producers and you know Kevin McClory is someone who there's not a big handful of people we can talk to on this podcast about him. Mm. Um, you know, obviously the people who worked on Thunderball are pretty much all gone. We weren't able to do a spy master interview for that film. And so like never say never again was really our best shot at that. And I think just her insights were really valuable. Yes. And of course we can't forget that he's clearly passionate about the Bond films. He's wanted to do, I know people will say it's like an F you to the, the broccolis and stuff by doing this film and kind of one of the reasons why Sean Connery came back as well. But there's a passion for this character. Otherwise you wouldn't go through all these years of trying to make these films. Yeah. And I mean, he was, you know, looking to try to do a third version of this story, which obviously didn't happen, but you can go online and read accounts of what that film Warhead could have been. 
just an interesting kind of what if project had there been that one ha- what if they got timothy dalton to make it what could that be we'll never really know but yeah he was a fascinating figure within bond canon but speaking of fascinating figures scott we also got to hear a little more about condor man the the film that keeps on giving when it comes to spy hards it's one of my favorites from the early days of the show um, and just to, again to speak to someone from Condor Man is absolutely astounding, really. But you know, I I, I know she was a slip of the tongue, but there was a moment where she implied that Christopher Walken was going to be the Condor Man, and that made my day. <laughs> that would have been the greatest movie of all time. I mean, Condor Man's pretty close already, but that would have put it over the top. <laughs> I I don't have a good um, Christopher Walken impression. But uh, I, I should go find a line from the film and get someone to read it out in Christopher Walken style. That would be incredible. And she seemed definitely amused that we were asking about Condor Man. Mm. And, you know, I she said she was aware there's a cult out there, a cult audience for Condor Man. But I think the Condor it's, fans. Yeah. Uh, just the fact that she said, you know, she was kind of dismissive of that movie and has kind of come to realize that, boy, a lot of people really seem to enjoy Condor Man. I think a big part of it is just... If you were my age, um, and I'm 41, and you saw this movie on TV back in the day or rented it, this was like the only real source for superhero films out there, other than the Richard Donner Supermans. You didn't even have Batman yet. And if you were into comic books and stuff, it was slim pickings. So you were always kind of looking around for things that were at least close to superhero movies. You would watch, you know, Meteor Man or something like that, just because... It's close. It's a, it's the closest thing I have. So I think for a lot of people, Condor Man became this must-watch film because it was giving superhero fans the content they didn't realize they would be drowning in decades later. No, and also hearing the story of Oliver Reed getting trashed and hanging from a chandelier in a in a pub in in Monte Carlo, a pub in Monte Carlo, a restaurant in Monte Carlo. That sounds more like it. Um, it's priceless. It's, I mean, it's no surprise given what we know about Oliver Reed. But um, yeah, can you imagine being such a young actor and then sat, being sat in that room with like Michael Crawford, The Phantom of the Opera, and Oliver Reed, and he's just sloshed. I mean, I've heard you know a number of stories about Oliver Reed and what a unique individual he was to deal with. People generally have pretty nice things to say about him, but it definitely seems like he was a guy who was a bit of a <laughs> A bit of a madman sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I just would love to have seen that in person. But uh, I, I'll live vicariously through Barbara Carrera's memories. But it, it, again, it is a testament to some of these cult films and how like cinema connects with people. Like I know people dismiss the, the two non-canonical Bond films, but they're so interesting when you discuss them. And Barbara is still passionate about the film that she made in 1983. And I, it was just so great to live in that world with her for a little bit mm-hmm. because she still has that passion for the project now. You can tell she loves James Bond and she loved being in James Bond. And there's a lot of like Bond girls that have kind of like just done it and moved on. Right. Which is fine. Absolutely fine. But it's nice that there are still some that hold it near and dear to their heart because we do too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, completely. And I think Fatima Blush is a character that will continue to live on um never seen ever again is obviously a movie that's getting tougher to find i think for a lot of people you're gonna have fans out there who 
are going to have to track this movie down. It's streaming. You know, you can pay to rent it most places, but they aren't putting out physical media, new releases of it. They're not putting it up on many streaming networks, um, at least at the time we're recording this. So I do hope at some point it just becomes really readily available. Like it's just on, you know, I, I guess Fox owned or no, it's I don't even know where the rights are right now, but I hope at some point it just winds up on a streamable version so that Bond fans in the future will be able to kind of continue to make it relevant and, you know, have the character of Fatima Bush continue to be an icon. Absolutely. And as I said, sort of the beginning half of this, like a watershed moment, I just, I'm just so happy that we had got the chance to do this. And I, I thank Barbara off air when we finished recording and I thank her again. I also want to send thanks to friend of the show, Scott Ray from uh, signing convention experiences who we know through Star Trek Las Vegas. Um, uh, who works with Barbara Carrera and helped us get this set up. So thank you, Scott. Uh, but I think before we wrap up, the question I have for you, Cam, is what are we doing next week? Yes, we are tackling a quite new movie. We are going to take on Simon Kinberg's The 355 from this year, starring Jessica Chastain, Penelope Cruz, Bing Bing Fan, and Diane Kruger. This is one that we did not do a um, declassified episode on, so... Here's a belated one, but a full episode. Yeah, it would be the quickest turnaround from uh, cinematic release to full podcast episode we've ever done. Uh, we didn't get a chance over Christmas to do a declassified review. We're just, uh, we were just busy with the holidays, unfortunately. So I haven't actually seen this film yet, so I'm quite excited to finally sit down and uh, gather my thoughts on it. I think you've caught it already, though, is that right, Cam? I haven't seen it, no. It um, was kind of like The Kingsman where they both came out during that holiday period and I was just too busy to see either one of them. Uh, I've caught up with Kingsman, but I haven't seen the 355, so I'm looking forward to remedying that. Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out the 355 and join us next week. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But, you know, you're right. In fact, I'm going to put you in my memoirs as number one. <laughs>